Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast you'll be listening to today is entitled Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist, Part 30, originally produced and published by Nate and Angeline Bagley of the Mormon Marriages Podcast. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife, back to the podcast. It's been too long. Glad to be here. I know. It's been a long time. For those of you who may not know Jennifer, she is a clinical psychotherapist who specializes in sex. She is phenomenal at what she does. We have her back regularly on the show to do our segment, Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist. And we ask her sex questions, and she answers them with her vast resources of knowledge and experience. Um, so Jennifer, before we dive in, why don't you tell us what you got going on right now? I know you've always got something cooking, some workshop yeah. or some sort of sure. uh, course that you got, that you got brewing. What, what do you got going yeah. on? See, like a couple things. One is that, uh, I do these online courses for couples and individuals. So I have two, uh, courses for couples, one on, uh, strengthening your relationship and enhancing sexual intimacy. It's focused on an LDS audience, but is, you know, uh, most, people who have some faith in their life find it helpful. And I also do a Art of Desire course on women's self and sexual development and a how to talk to your kids about sex course. And they are all on sale right now for Valentine's Day, 20% off of everything, plus additional discounts if you get more than one course. So that's going on until a day or two after Valentine's. And then we are about to post three events that are happening in March, I'll be going to Dallas, Texas for a two-day live women's Art of Desire workshop. Then I'll be in Calgary, Canada in April for a two-day event. And then in Mar- I'm sorry, in May, well, we'll be in France, but I, I think that there is no, that's sold out. It's possible something will open, but that'll be an 11-day couples tour of France. But then there is going to be a three-day women's retreat in Oregon where the sleeping over, exercise, lumber party. Exactly. (laughs) It is the best. I'm telling you, it is so much fun that retreat. So, um, it's only like 60 spots. So it's, um, it's, it's a good, it's a good one. (laughs) Great. And they can just find out about that on your website. It's all on my website. We'll be posting everything. All those things will be available to purchase this week that we're recording. So yeah. Great. So. And if you want to link to that, just go to the Mormon marriages website on our blog and we'll have links to yep. everything specifically. We'll so you have can everything get, get there. to it. Mm-hmm. Right. Awesome. Great. All right. You ready to jump in? Yes. You want to read the first one? Sure. Here we go with question number one. Um, Start right here. Okay. All right, here we go. There is so much to this but I'll do my best to explain as much as possible without taking up all of your time. My wife had a baby six months ago. She stopped breastfeeding at two months and she's afraid to have sex with me again. I've tried to get her to open up to me about what is going on and why she is so anxious. I've let her dictate the pace of things so far, but if we're up, if it were up to her, I'm not sure we'd ever have sex again. Before the baby sex was a struggle for her. She was unsure of what she liked and what felt good. If I accidentally stumbled on something that felt good and she had an orgasm, I would try to repeat whatever I was doing during the next session, but that was rarely successful. I'm beside myself trying to figure out what can be done to help her learn to enjoy being intimate with me. What can I do? Or what can I encourage her to do? Help. Okay, good. So um, what I would guess about this situation, and it is often the case, 
when someone finds themselves in this situation is that it sounds like the wife is ambivalent about sexuality because if she's like a lot of my clients, she hasn't yet learned to see sexuality or experience sexuality, maybe better said, as something that's really about belonging to herself and a way of being with herself and her spouse. And if she's like a lot of my clients who've sort of grown up in the idea that sex is something you do for men and that good women don't like sex that much or that they like to have sex for their husband's sake, well, then, you know, there's just a deep ambivalence about how sexual to be and how much to cultivate this part of oneself. And so it's not that you can't have any pleasure. It sounds like she is having pleasure with sex, that she's having orgasms and enjoys them. Or I don't know if she enjoys them, but she at least, you know, gets Mm -hmm. probably some physical pleasure out of it. But that's different than the idea that she sees sexuality as something that is important to her personally and that she wants to foster in herself and cultivate uh, between herself and her husband. And I think that can be confusing for some husbands because they think, you know, if it feels good, why don't you want it? Mm -hmm. Or if we had this one positive experience, why not do it again? Or if I was able to touch you in this way, why wouldn't it work for me to touch you in this way again? And I think that what is often hard to see is that it's for so many people, the lack of sexual development is not about whether or not you get any pleasure in it. It's whether or not it feels like a way to expand your sense of self. So something that you know, uh, someone I've studied with, Dr. David Schnarch says, is that it's more important to us to belong to our sense of self than it is for us to be sexual. And first time I heard that, it was like confusing what that, what does that even mean? Belonging to your sense of self. But, you know, when we're dating, as I've talked about on some other podcasts, when we're dating, we desire in part because it feels so good to be with our beloved. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're falling in love with someone, that it feels like about, you know, it's expansive to be with them. It feels like possibility. It feels like, you know, they're validating of who you are. They're validating of your desirability. And so it feels good to be close to them. And it makes you want it because it expands your sense of self being with them. You know, they're reflecting back that you're desirable and exciting and all this possibility. So it feels good. But for many women, they've learned the idea that duty is the primary meaning frame of married sex. Mm. And so this is something you kind of do to accommodate the husband. This is something you do to manage his desires, uh, but not really connected to your sense of self. Uh, Because a lot of females have learned, you know, good women are not interested. Good women don't think about sex. Good women don't want this. And so for some women, their first sexual experience, they actually feel a real sense of loss. Like they went Mm -hmm. from the kind of idealized, pure self-view into a more, like a sense of loss. And so sex is not connected to self-expansion. It's connected to a kind of contraction of self. You know, I'm doing this to keep you happy. I'm doing this to kind of be the right kind of wife, but I'm not doing this as a way to belong to me and be with you. 
So it's kind of a long answer, but it's a very important distinction because it's not about just having an orgasm. It's about whether or not there's a shift in meaning that allows someone to start to value sexuality as something that's inherent to being themselves, inherent to being a whole person, inherent to being an adult woman, rather than managing a husband. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for a lot of people who, you know, grow up in the church or have grown up in a religious frame, it's just not at all the way they think about sexuality. You know, you, you got to be really, really careful if you have too much desire, you know, that's Satan's pathway. Or if you, you know, you do enough to keep your husband from looking at porn, but you don't want to really like it because maybe then you'll encourage his, his demise in some sense or his, you know, sinfulness. And so when there's that deep ambivalence, then a lot of people are just trying to do enough to kind of gratify the marriage partner, but they don't ever step into their sexuality. And, and in order to have orgasms consistently, you know, the sort of open secret for women is that you have to seduce your own orgasm. I mean, mm -hmm. like, you know, you, yeah. you are an active part of that. You're a participant. You're thinking about the things that make you move towards sexuality and desire instead of you know waiting for someone to do it to you and if you're ambivalent about that it's going to be a lot harder to achieve definitely there's, so you know my go ahead and make, yeah <clears throat> there's a note there's a note in here also that mentions that yeah. she that she might struggle with some anxiety uh-huh um, yes how could that how could that play a factor in what might be going on in there this dynamic well two 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 thoughts I have about that. One is that anxiety, especially for women, is an anti-aphrodisiac. I mean, there's a certain amount of anxiety that actually is an aphrodisiac that makes sex better. So, you know, adventure, newness, there's a certain amount of anxiety that can make it more pleasurable. But if you have a lot of anxiety, that definitely pushes down eroticism. Um, this is true for men as well. But for men, Sometimes anxiety can uh, not necessarily make you not want sex, but may make you have premature orgasm. For women, it is a de delayed orgasm or the non-existence of orgasm with a lot of anxiety. And so that may be part of what's going on. The second thought I have about it is if someone is highly anxious, they may operate in a perfectionistic and what I would call other referencing reality that mm -hmm. oftentimes when we are trying to be what we think other people want us to be, we're trying to live up to a reflected sense of self, we're going to tend to be a lot more anxious and unsettled about who we are. And it's a lot harder if you're thinking about what other people want from you to be able to want and cultivate a desire for sex. And this is very much, you know, my Art of Desire course is very much around this whole framing of how we, as Mormon women, as, as Latter-day Saint women, have come into the notion of what it is to be sexual, but not just what it is to be sexual, what it is to have a self and what it is to be good. And, you know, we get taught that good women reference what everybody else wants from them. They're selfless, right. that idea. And so when you both have the idea that sex isn't congruent with being a good woman and desire general is not congruent with being a good woman and you should be desireless, um, you know, then it's really hard to not live in the world in an anxious and depressogenic way. And also find it very hard to even have a self 
that's sort of anchored into who you truly are and into your desires and thoughts and beliefs and feeling to share in marriage or to be a part of developing your sexuality that you share in marriage. So mm -hmm. there is, you know, there is this whole meaning frame that often people don't see that's operating and makes it very difficult to solve these sexual challenges. And this is what I talk about in the beginning of my workshops and courses that people are operating in a meaning frame that they, they don't even really know is there that makes it almost impossible to allow them to develop the capacity to be a passionate, interested sexual partner. Mm -hmm. And so the workshop is really helping it come into uh, into relief that people can actually see what they couldn't see before and then to challenge it and come up with another way of making sense of what it is to be good what it is to create goodness through your sexuality and in your partnership and how to relate to your desires in a way that create goodness in your life that make you stronger and other people stronger so it's giving people a different way of putting these these ideas together that they can actually reconcile sexuality with goodness yeah. Well, so it sounds to me like this is something that runs far deeper than just the it fact that we me. had a baby six months oh, ago. Oh, yeah. And thanks for saying that because mm -hmm. I think that can actually, it sounds like she was challenging, you know, challenged by this beforehand, but having a baby actually can make it even more punctuated because mm -hmm. if we believe that, well, to be a mother is to be a good mother is to be selfless and to let go of the things that would be, um, you know, a, a a threat to the innocence of the child or to the innocence of family life. A lot of women who actually are comfortable with their sexuality before having a baby will find themselves suddenly feeling more uncomfortable with being an erotic sexual being because they're afraid they're infecting the goodness of family life because that's so often we de-eroticize mothers and we de-eroticize women um, as a function of goodness. And so it's well-intentioned and and sort of inherited from the culture without even recognizing it. And so she may be getting the double whammy of not, not just the physical changes, of course, which is a part of it, and nursing and being up all night and feeling like you're losing yourself in not a good way. Yeah. <laughs> it's often a part of early motherhood. So uh -huh. that's another piece here uh, for sure. And then there may be the added meaning of then maybe this is incongruent with motherhood at all. But, uh, but yeah, so all those th factors are probably playing a role. Mm -hmm. I think it's helpful for him to understand where she's coming from in this way. And he asked what he could do to help encourage her because it sounds like this is something that she's going to need to work on herself. Yeah. So spouse it's, do that it's a great, I'm glad you're saying all that, Angela. But it's hard because it's not, how to say it, um, I think she has to sort out what she wants for herself. Yeah. And, you know, I think what I would probably do if I were him would be about wanting to just, you know, I think it would serve him to actually start waking up to the meaning frame that might be operating between them where mm -hmm. he may, you know, more than he realizes, and he may not be, but many men are complicit in the idea that, you know, when are you going to be the right kind of wife? You know, when are yeah. you going to start wanting sex? 
and um, might unwittingly be reinforcing her unhappiness with the sexual arrangement and her mm -hmm. desire to step away from that pressure. So it's a tricky thing to know how do I talk about this in a way that's honest, yeah, but not pressuring from an entitled position. Yeah, and you know it might sound like this, like I don't fully understand it yet, honey, wife. <laughs> I'm trying to think about it, mm -hmm. um, but that feel like that there could be a way for you to grow on this frame a way that we could relate to this topic of sexuality in a way that makes us both happier not just me and um and i know that you're under a lot of pressure with our child and that there's a lot of shifts going on but I also hope that we can take a look at and address our sexual relationship and and make something that works for both of us because yeah. it's been more in the how to make me husband happy frame and that's not been working well for either one of us. And right. so it might right now might not be the time you're adjusting to a lot of things, but I do, it does really matter to me that at some point we start to look at our intimate life and how we make it something about you and me definitely yeah mm -hmm. another another thing that kind of comes to mind is um whenever i hear the word anxiety i, I feel like it, in some way it stems from feeling out of control like feeling yeah. like you don't have control over your your life yes or an aspect of your life and i'm wondering if i mean obviously it sounds like she struggled with this before they had a baby I wonder if just the, this, because inherent in a sexual relationship, there's an aspect of letting go of control. Like mm, yes. the, the, even just the experience of an orgasm is something yes. where you literally completely lose yeah, control for a, mo for a go, moment. Yeah. Sure. And mm -hmm. I wonder if there's, um, if there's something there about her just really needing to hold on to control and be able to control every aspect of her life and yes. being worried about losing control in, uh, in that aspect that she could sure lean. absolutely and you know something that I say to people is I actually want people to have control I, I just want them to have control of themselves in the best mm -hmm. sense and so I think when uh, and I don't know about the specifics of this person certainly there is a there is a range within people of how anxious they are in the world just in general right and so uh, but what I would say is when we are in our early developments psychologically, um, we all want to kind of control in a sense, our, we, we all want to control our sense of self, but in our early development, that sense of self comes from getting a view of ourselves from others that is sufficient. So a lot of us, and by early development, I don't mean necessarily we're young, because a lot of people are doing this at 80, actually, but, but in <laughs> early psychological development, we're trying to get people around us to tell us we're okay. Mm. And so that precludes intimacy, because if you need people to tell you you're okay, you don't really want to be knowable, right? You don't really want to show the underbelly because you might not get the view from them that you're okay. Yeah. And if you can't kind of sustain a sense that I am okay, flaws and all, you're gonna really uh, resist people knowing you. 
sexual intimacy is like taking that even 10 times further because sexual intimacy is to really show your most inner self to someone. And if you've grown up learning that sexual exposure, you know, basically the sexuality isn't really even inherent to being feminine and that, um, you know, and you're really unclear about whether or not this is legit. You don't really want to know yourself even in this way, much less have a spouse know you in this way. So a lot of us who want to control that the world, you know, that we are the right kind of people, and if we've learned the right kind of person is not that sexual, you just kind of want to shut this whole thing down. And mm -hmm. even if you have sex to keep your spouse happy, you're not showing up much. Yeah because you're trying to control how you are seen and you're trying to control how much exposure you have. But the problem with it is that it doesn't solve the issue of anxiety. It actually makes it worse. Worse, yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a trap. So interesting. I never, I never thought that the need for constant reassurance would be literally the killer of intimacy because yes. your partner can't be honest with you. And yep. honesty is like a vital piece of being of trust and being known and being seen and like if you need passion. that constant reassurance the, the honesty goes away and that means your partner will lie to you in order to make That's you right. feel better which in which makes it impossible for them to connect with you yeah and kills passion too because yeah. it turns it into a, a caretaker caretaker yeah rather yeah. than you know adult and adult and so and men of course do this as well as much as women do which is you know reassure me validate my sexuality you know, am I sufficient? And a lot of women, you know, will feel the pressure to have an orgasm to validate his sense of himself, not for their pleasure, which of course yeah. will always kill passion. So this issue of anxiety and a reflected sense of self is really at the core of our development as people and our sexual development. And you have to sacrifice that on the altar of intimacy if you're going to yeah. grow into your ability to do this and it's hard yeah. beautifully said it's a good question yeah all right we're ready for question number two sure great uh i think i had an emotional affair i've been married to my wife for almost a decade and she's the absolute best she truly is my best friend a wonderful mother to our three kids after almost 10 years of marriage things have gotten pretty routine but not necessarily complacent. We still laugh and talk and enjoy each other, but sometimes the routine gets a little stale. A couple years ago, I texted a female friend. We were friends in high school, but hadn't kept in touch um, until I reached out about a business proposition. It was pretty innocent, but over time became kind of flirty, and she finally proposed the idea of, of an affair. I immediately severed ties with her and told my wife what she had said. This happened um, more than seven months ago, and we haven't spoken about it since, but honestly, I miss her. I think about her all the time, almost daily. I miss how we, how we would make each other laugh and our deep conversations through texts. I miss being desired by somebody new or at all. It has gotten easier over time, but I could, but I could use a little bit of direction here. What, uh, was this an emotional affair? Should I tell my wife about it? How can I phrase it sensitively if so? And um, how can I deal with this feeling of wanting to reach out to my former friend all the time? How do I replace all the feelings of excitement that I was getting from her for her? Or do I have to learn to deal without that excitement altogether? I, I don't know. I guess I've just got issues. 
<laughs> we all have got issues. Some, yeah. yeah, we all got issues, <laughs> buddy. Uh, pretty sure you're pretty human. Yeah, exactly. It sounds pretty human. Yeah. So, uh, is it an emotional affair? It's a, it's a little bit hard to define in that sense, but yeah, it sounds like that a boundary was being crossed and the way you can know if a boundary is starting to be crossed is whether or not you have to start keeping information from your spouse. Mm -hmm. So as, soon as you're keeping, as soon as you know, you have information to keep your spouse from knowing, well, then that's by definition, you are yeah. now basically entering into an arena where you are trying to have something while stealing your spouse's choice by not giving them the full information mm -hmm. and human beings have had affairs ever since we've existed basically because we like them we like how they feel um they're exciting they're exciting and they're validating so just as i was talking about in the first question you know this need or this desire that we have to pe have people tell us that we're okay well of course, you're getting that in spades when you're falling in love. <clears throat> but once you move into the routine and the day-to-day, -day, you know, you have a sense of security often with your spouse, but it's not as validating because, you know, they, they've learned your secrets. They've started figuring out you're not that great all the time <laughs> and neither are they. And so the validation system that was operating in dating has, you know, the proverbial honeymoon ends and it starts to break down. And your spouse is often invalidating, okay? And, and in reality, this is why marriage is a divine institution, in my opinion, because it has the mechanisms to pressure you to grow out of a validation need and pressure you to develop into a more solid human being who is more integrity-based and integrity-driven. I'm not saying that always happens, but it, the, the, it, it's there to teach you if you'll let it. But it hurts. And... And so, and I, this person is being clear. He's not saying I'm in a painful marriage. He's just saying it, it was getting more routine. It was getting less interesting. And so to have the validation of an attractive, fun woman was really compelling. And, mm -hmm. and it, it makes sense that it is because, you know, they don't know the ins and outs of your life, that you're not trying to manage children and a household and a budget, you know, you're talking over lunch or over a project or something. And so it's easy to offer the validation to that person or to, or to take in their validation because it's narrow and without commitment and without the ugly actually. Mm -hmm. And so it's cheap, but it still feels good. Right. And so by cheap, I mean, it's just not very deep yet. You don't know right. that it's it not could, substantive. It's, it's not, not very realistic. It's yeah. not realistic. In fact, you know, 80% of marriages that happen that began as an affair end in divorce. So, you know, people may say, well, I'm going to leave my spouse because this feels so good. And, and it's actually just not a sustainable frame that what oftentimes people don't recognize is that partly the validation feels good because they have all the security of their marriage partner and they don't have to reconcile the two as long as they can keep it in two different domains. Mm -hmm. 
And so, you know, a lot of times um, I've worked with couples where, you know, one couple where he was having an affair and, um, and then the wife became aware of it. And she basically was threatening divorce if he didn't end things with this younger woman. And I, this wasn't an LDS couple, but I think he thought that uh, he was, I think he thought she wasn't going to act on it because they were quite wealthy because he was the CEO of a company. And, and, um, and she was serious. And so she said, no, I'm done. It's me or her, her. It looks like you're choosing her. I'm out. And he was so devastated by the fact that, you know, when he really was just looking at this affair partner and he's going to lose his wife and children and this woman that had known him all these years, he was like, what the heck? Like bubbles is nothing compared to my wife. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so it suddenly came into relief for him. And, you know, he's somebody who like, you know, struggled and struggled and struggled for months to basically reconcile who he had become and to, you know, it was like nine months later that she invited him back into the house and so on. But I recognize this question isn't at that level. Um, but he's trying to sort out, I really miss her. And, and in a sense, I'm, I'm not surprised he misses her because it probably felt good and it probably was an enjoyable friendship and had some goodness in it and had some excitement in it, you know, mm-hmm. meaning, you know, the, it, it's not hard to love more than one person. It's not hard yeah. to be drawn to more than one person and to value them a lot. The issue of course, is that you can't actually in honesty sustain both relationships. And so I think that the, I'm just trying to think how I would pose the question, but I think that, you know, people who, and again, I know this isn't what this person's doing, but let me just sort of talk theoretically for just a minute. People that try to keep both things alive end up ruining both. You know, Mm -hmm. the hard thing about life is we want that validation and that approval and we want security. We want both things. Relation people, the happiest people that are, the people that are most happily married have figured out a way to have enough security in their marriage to feel a sense of safety and trust, but it's a growing marriage and they are growing within the context of the marriage. So it doesn't get stale and um, just validation based. Like it's, it's willing to be honest enough and growing enough that it stays alive and vital. Those are the most happily married people. So they get to have both things. A lot of us do a split in our marriages where we kind of make our marriages predictable and safe. We stay kind of validation focused. We don't bring up hard things or we don't deal with hard things and it maybe feels predictable, but dead. And we're more vulnerable to going and finding life outside of the marriage because we're afraid of bringing life into the marriage. And I think that if this were my client, I would probably be suggesting to him that I would probably be encouraging him to find a way to talk about, well, first of all, I would be validating the fact that he misses this friend. Right. Because it makes sense to me that he misses her. It's because a part of himself that he hasn't found a space for yet in the marriage exists in the relationship with the other person. Yeah. And so it makes sense that it feels good. 
but that's not necessarily the idea that his wife isn't sufficient or the marriage couldn't become a happier marriage. It's just he's created a split because it's easy to do when you're validation seeking. For my client, I would be saying to him, I think you have an opportunity to take what you've been, learn from what you've been doing in your marriage in some ways, how the two of you have co-constructed something that's polite and good, but still not as alive as it could be. And talk more honestly with your wife about the fact that this person suggested an affair, you cut it off, but that you found yourself drawn to the, the energy that was in that relationship or the excitement or the possibility and that it scared you and therefore you shut it off because you don't want to do something, but that you want to address your marriage more honestly and take a harder look at how to make it a more vital marriage. Because just, you know, as we were talking about before, like when, when you stay validation based, it's easy to kind of become complacent and not grow. It's harder to have the conversations around you know, I'm bored sexually, or I'm, you know, or no, I don't like that you do that, or my spouse doesn't like that I do this, and, and be willing, because, you know, the reason why the marriage, the commitment of marriage is virtuous, in my opinion, is not because you can't be attracted to anybody else, or that you couldn't find pleasure or good things with other people. You certainly can, but you're making a decision to bring your most courageous, best self to cultivate the best partnership that you can. And you're willing to talk about hard things that make them upset with you that are being said not to make them feel bad, but being said to better address your challenges as a couple. And you're willing to let your spouse do the same and talk straight to you about who you are and how you're limited. And that you're willing to tolerate the invalidation of that process to create something worthy. And see, the couples that do that, they have the best sex because it's alive. Mm -hmm. And they get the sense, like, I really know this person. I get to really know this person I know very well, knows me very well. And yet this person's not in my back pocket. You know, right. I don't, you know, I don't have them wrapped around my finger. They can challenge me and talk straight to me and they are their own person and they're attractive. Um, and that's that combination of the familiar and the adventure that we really mm. love as human beings that can happen in a good, in a, in a marriage that's growing. I love that. Mm. Yeah. I, I, have you read, um, Esther Perel's new book, uh, the state of affairs? I haven't read that one yet. No. Phenomenal, phenomenal book about infidelity. And, um, it's a very nuanced book and this the person who submitted the question might might really actually enjoy it. It yeah, would provide, yeah. I think, a lot of additional context to yes. what you might be experiencing. Um, but one yeah. thing, one thing that your comments kind of brought up for me is just I remembered, and I've talked about this on the podcast, I think, before, and written about it. But um, in the story of Genesis in the Bible, the very first thing God does is he he talks about he identifies himself as the creator of the universe. Um, he doesn't introduce himself as our father. He doesn't introduce himself as you know all the other titles that he takes in scripture he identifies himself first and introduces himself first as a creator and then lets us know he's our father and that we're his children and i think that um there's a you could the way i i would like to think that that's a little intentional mm -hmm. and that as his children we inherit his ability to create 
Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to marriage, I think it's the greatest creation, creative process yeah. that you can that you can go through. 100%. And I went I went to this really interesting um, conference this weekend. I got to hear from uh, Tony Robbins, who's a really interesting guy and has coached mm-hmm. a lot of people. And one of the things he talks about is um, is life happening to you, happening to you, or is it happening for you? And I think a lot of people go through this, go through life um, happening to you mm-hmm. and it's just happening yeah. to them. They, they just are reactionary towards life yeah. and then they find themselves 15 years into their marriage with a marriage that doesn't excite them anymore. And a marriage does, that doesn't feel alive, that right. a marriage that where there's corners and pieces of them that feel like they're asleep or dead or turned right. off that exactly. they miss. And these affairs are one ways to act, one way to activate that piece of themselves. But another way to activate that piece of themselves would be to acknowledge the fact that you've let it fall by the wayside, right. and then and, and then stop letting your marriage and life happen to you, and instead decide to co-create with your partner the type of yes. marriage that will awake those things in you. And right. so, to me, yeah, that's right. like one of the most godlike things that you can do is step yeah, into this yeah. mindset as, as a creator. Yeah. This is something I talk about actually in my courses a lot is just this fundamental creative capacity of being human. And I was uh, doing a workshop this last weekend and one of the women raised her hand and she said, you know, what do I do with the fact that I feel like God wanted us to get married, that, that God kind of put us together because basically what she was saying was, wasn't really what I wanted. It's sort of what God wanted. And so oh, she, that kind yeah. of life's happening to me frame. And they'd been married for a while. And I said, you know, I think this is where the kind of compliance, obedience framing can get us in the wrong way. Because first of all, God didn't make you marry your husband. You chose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you said yes. It was an invitation. You said yes to it. But it sounds like you've been passive and resentful and sort of made it God's decision rather than your choice you haven't owned it own it and so i said you know you you and your husband each made a choice and it's not just oh like okay i did this now i just have to endure till the end and god's just going to be so happy with me because i like stuck it out with this percent okay i mean i said you know i think you really need to think about how do i make this choice a good choice yeah what what can i and we create out of this marriage and out of this partnership that we have chosen and, you know, to basically bring some self to that and create a good partnership and a good friendship out of two very different people. And, uh, you know, that's what I think we all owe ourselves and those around us is that creative engagement. And totally you know, I said, like, I never say to myself, what does God want me to learn from this? I think more in terms of what can I learn from this? Mm-hmm. And I'm often praying to God for that. Like, what can I learn? about what's true and what's good from this hard situation but it's more open-ended and creative than some deterministic frame yeah i wish we could change that endure to the end catchphrase to enjoy to the end yeah yeah wouldn't exactly. that be nicer 100 <laughs> percent. the whole murder frame yeah. i want to endure <laughs> all right last question okay last question my question is about sexuality and chronic illness how to navigate sexuality and desire when one partner has a normal high sex drive and the other is sick and has barely any energy for anything. Even washing my hair is difficult most days. Before we were married, I had a great drive, but very soon after I became very, very sick. 
I try to be sexual as much as possible, but I feel guilty about not being able to meet his needs. Most of the time, I'd rather die than put the necessary energy into sex. Do you have any ideas for strategies to employ when his desire is high, but my energy is low? So I maybe have a couple thoughts about it. Um, the first one is just that, unfortunately, if you, you know, are physically ill, sex drive is one of the first things to go. Just from a sort of biological perspective, the body, when you're under a lot of stress, if you're physically ill, you know, sexuality is, is more about thriving than not surviving. And so your body puts its orientation to survival. And so, you know, if you're sick, um, sex drive is going to be low. Um, but I think if I were to say, if there's anything that, you know, on the other hand, when we relate to things as if we, uh, from the frame that we have to do it, that, you know, we are bad if we don't do it, um, that will kill any possibility of sexual interest that we might have. Mm -hmm. So I think if I were this person, you know, she's saying, I think it's a she is saying, I feel guilty about not being able to generate the interest. I would be careful with that because I, or I would at least be reflective on that because I think guilt is an, a feeling that you can have when you have another option. So guilt, a lot of times we feel anxiety when we can't do what we think other people want from us. And that may be what she's saying. But guilt is when you feel that you're doing something that is genuinely wrong and you really, in within yourself, you really know you ought to do differently. Mm -hmm. If it's genuine, how to say it, if you're saying, I don't respect how I'm behaving, well, I would encourage you to then say, you know, maybe I'm not investing as much energy as I believe I really ought to. Then I would say you should live up to your own expectations of yourself. But if you are saying, I really cannot generate it, I cannot offer this marriage what I wish I could because I am too sick, then I wouldn't burden some fantasy that you can do better if you can't. So mm -hmm. I think what I'm trying to say in this is if, if this were my client, I would be really pushing the question of can you do better and you know you're being indulgent within yourself or you can't do better and you're beating yourself up and you can't. And I would really be pushing that question because you either need to say it's not gonna, it's not capable of being different than this. And we need to just understand that it will always be X, Y, or Z, or that this is what I really can do so that you're not always in this painful place. Or, okay, maybe I'm not, don't have easy desire in all these ways, but I think I can be indulgent around my illness, or I can just sort of be begrudging or not really invest myself. And I know that I am robbing my spouse's happiness. Well, then I would say you owe it to yourself and your partnership to to challenge where you get indulgent in this way and just so you have peace of mind and when you are choosing you're really choosing because a mm -hmm. lot of times we will straddle i really should and then we behave one way while we kind of keep our heart in another place and we're always a house divided and that's hard on relationships and it's hard on a relationship to ourselves so i would be 
inviting this person to really figure out that split that she or he, I'm not sure the sex of the questioner, but yeah, she was a she. And it's a she. Okay. Yeah. Yep. That she mm -hmm. Yeah. That's great. I think that's a issue that a lot of people deal with, unfortunately. Yeah. And there's always that story in the back of your head that says you could be doing more, you could be doing more, but if you're honest with yourself, right. you're really that sick. Yeah, man, exactly. It's an unnecessary burden to place on yourself. Yeah, I, the way I sometimes think of it is, you know, um, is this I could be doing more coming from the worst in you or the best in you? Is it the tyrannical, I should be perfect, you know, this kind of self-flagellate, you know, this kind of self, what's that word? Flagellating. Flatulating <laughs> is passing gas. Flagellating is using a whip to hit yourself. You're like I'm saying the wrong word. <laughs> but this is my favorite Jennifer Finlayson Fife moment of all time. Self-flatulating. <laughs> yeah. It could so be both. Can... <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So yeah, so am I beating myself up? And this is just kind of self-hating and almost indulgent tyranny. Or is it um, coming from the best in me where I really know I can be doing better than I'm doing? And, I need, and, and it's really important on this issue for people to figure out which one it is. Yeah. So you want to challenge yourself from the best in you, but not the perfectionist, tyrannical part of you. The awesome. truth is power. It is. Be honest. Yep, that's right. Well, we're so glad to have had you back again. Yeah, we've, we've missed you. I yeah. know. I've missed you guys. I, it's uh, been a few busy months. So yeah. Yeah. The holidays get cray-cray. Yep. Well, we hope everybody takes advantage of your special Valentine's deals. Thank you. And uh, we'll hopefully have you back on yeah. sooner with a sooner. little bit of a short, smaller gap between this episode and yes. the next one. Brilliant. We'll Wonderful. Good. All right. Thanks, you guys. Yep. Thank Bye. you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in our show notes below to learn more about where you can find Dr. Finlayson Fife's website, her online courses, information about her upcoming events, information about her free Facebook group, and more. Thank you for being here.